The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And today we're so lucky to have with us Eric Endlich, who's rapidly becoming one of my heroes. Not just because he's a neurodiversity self-advocate, and not just because he's helping countless people whose brains are a little bit different transition to college, but he's got it all. He's, he's a self-advocate, he's a dad, he's a coach, he's doing everything. Eric, welcome. Thank you, Hacky. it's nice to be here. Well, thanks for having us. You know, each time I read about you and your history, I get more and more... Uh, uh, I guess impressed is not the right word. I, I admire you more and more because I love that you uh, you uh, do what our philosophy is here at Different Brains. You take a maybe not so good break and you turn it into a great break and you use it to help other people and you use it to do so many things. Um, tell us how we, uh, you got into this, uh, the whole thing. And, and, and of course, we want to talk... Uh, in a bit about top college consultants, but Eric Enlick, you have the floor. Oh, um, I'm a clinical psychologist by training and I did work for quite a few years in the mental health field. I'm also an autism dad, so I was immersed in the autism field or have been immersed in the autism world since my son was diagnosed at the age of two and a half in 1999, he's now 24. And um, that was a life-changing moment, um, you know, brought my wife and I into the autism world. We started going to conferences, reading about it and so on. So I was pretty um, knowledgeable, I think, um, pretty involved in the field already. And then um, quite a few years later, um, my wife and I were at an autism conference and we simultaneously figured out that, that I'm on the spectrum too. And that was sort of another shift where... Uh, I became even more involved and autism became sort of a special interest for me. Um, and I actually changed careers to not just helping folks on the spectrum and helping neurodivergent teens and adults uh, with problems in general as a psychotherapist, but specifically with the transition to college and applying to college and grad school. And I've always liked working with teens and I've always liked working with um, autistic teens and adults, but I realized i particularly passionate about higher education. And I, I had seen as a therapist, I'd seen some teens go off to college and unfortunately not have a successful experience where they were back home in the first year because they didn't have the support they needed at college. And I realized that if families learn about the supports available at college and send their kids to the colleges where they're going to get the supports they need. And if kids are, of course, willing to access those supports, they can thrive and stay in college and graduate just like everybody else. But as, as a group, unfortunately, the graduation rate tends to be lower. Um, and I think part of that is because they're not embracing their own identity, they're not saying, yeah, I, I'm on the spectrum or I have ADHD or dyslexia, or whatever the um, type of, of neurodivergence might be, and or, and then, you know, getting whatever help and support they need. Tell us about, Eric, the um, support that is available 
at various colleges and what you've done to analyze and break down different colleges as it might affect the choice and habits of neurodivergent individuals. Sure, and, and maybe before getting into that, I wanna emphasize that um, you don't have to wait until you start college to get you know, the support that you might need. Um, many of the students I work with are already on an education plan, an IEP or 504 in high school. Some of them are attending special uh, needs schools. Um, so th there's opportunities to work on those skills and hone the skills you're going to need in college before you get to college. So frequent, you know, sometimes they're independent living skills, executive function skills, social skills, whether it's getting up in the morning, keeping track of your schoolwork, taking regular showers, whatever the challenge may be, um, start working on those things before you leave high school. And, and, and parents need to and the whole team that's working with the student needs to be kind of nudging them along. And, and I understand as a special needs parent myself that the difficulty, it's very tempting to kind of do everything for your child. So I think there's that opportunity to work on those skills in high school. Then there's this, the time between high school and college. You don't have to immediately go to college if you're not ready. And part of what I do is help figure out if students are ready. And if they're not, they can take a gap year, go to a college readiness program, um, go get involved in some kind of program where they can learn more of those life skills, executive function skills, whatever it is they need to work on. And then finally, to your point, they can go to a college where they're going to be adequately supported. And most colleges have sort of a, a base level, which is really accommodations, uh, disability accommodations. You can get extra time on tests. You can take tests in a special distraction reduced room. You might be able to get a single room in the residence hall uh, and various other accommodations. Those are not services or supports. Those are just accommodations that are um, available under the federal law, the ADA. That's great, um, but you might need way more than just that sort of basic level of accommodations. What if you need help keeping track of your assignments? What if you need help um, learning how to make friends and get along with your roommate and other social aspects. So some colleges have learning support programs and then some program, some colleges also have autism support programs. They sound similar. There is some overlap, but they're not exactly the same. So autism support programs tend to have a social component that might be social skills workshops. It might be social events. It might be both. Um, it might be a one-on-one -on -one time to work with the student on any difficulties they're running into, getting along with the roommate or self-advocating with professors. And then learning support or academic support programs will have some of the same components like academic coaching, helping students with executive function, staying, managing their time, getting assignments done. But they usually don't have the, the social component that the autism support programs have. Have you found a big gender difference I don't mean in frequency, I mean between the transitioning process for a male versus a female versus non-binary versus... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have non-binary students on the spectrum too. Um, that's a great question. Um, I have not actually thought about that per se, but um, it reminds me of, an, uh, not to go on too far of a tangent, but 
as you may know, I, I recently co-wrote a book on autistic adults, older autistic adults in their own words, the lost generation. And we did find significant uh, gender differences in that uh, study. It was a international study of 150 adults over age 50. And I know it's not the same as your question about, about high school students well, applying okay. to college, but, but, but we found some interesting gender differences. We found that uh, women or, or folks who identified as female were less uh, we're more likely to self-diagnose or self-identify as being on the spectrum. So uh, less likely to get professionally or officially diagnosed. That's a whole other topic. Um, but that I think speaks to the fact that, that females may present differently from males and may be overlooked. And so they often end up kind of having to advocate for themselves more because they, they, they kind of fall in the cracks. Um, and there was also more um, diversity in gender identification and sexuality for females that they were less likely to identify as being straight, more likely to identify as being LGBTQ plus than the males in the study were. That was another difference. And I think they reported higher rates of PTSD as well. So we, we did find some interesting findings there. Uh, just thought I'd throw that in. Very interesting. What is the one biggest challenge that uh, the autistic individual might find when they go off to college? I know there's multiple, but are there any that just stick out or is it a group of them or is it all of the above? <laughs> uh, there are a few. I mean, I think, oh, it, it really kind of triggers all the things that, that you might find difficult. So if you have sensory sensitivities, you're gonna get hit right at orientation. Before classes even start, you show up at a college orientation and they have a, a crowd awaiting you who are screaming to, you know, cheering you on as you come in and there's hundreds or thousands of students moving in. You could have sensory overload from day one, not to mention the smells in the dining hall and, and so on. Um, I, you know, I'm part of my, goal in life is to help colleges and workplaces, organizations in general, become more autism friendly, um, not just specifically for autism, but neurodiversity friendly, become more welcoming and inclusive of everyone. So, um, you know, I, I'd like to see that, that change, but um, you certainly will encounter challenges if you have sensory sensitivities, which is likely, I think if I had to pick one thing, it would be executive function because there's so much more structure in high school versus when you go off to college. So in high school, whether you know it or not, you have a lot of structure around you typically from the time that your parents may be waking you up in the morning, helping you with breakfast, making sure you have stuff in your backpack, getting you to school on time, you know, all the structure in the day, uh, students' lives are often stru pretty structured from morning till night in high school. In college, much of that disappears and, all, and much of your support network disappears unless, as we talked about earlier, you access higher level support in college than is, than is typical. But if you just go off like any other student college, you're gonna have a huge amount of freedom, which may seem very exciting and fun Hey, I can do whatever I want. I can sleep as late as I want on the weekends. I can decide, you know, I can procrastinate on assignments and so on. 
but that can, you can get into trouble very quickly. And as I said earlier, I did see that with some students. You may have classes scheduled three, four days a week. You may have three or four days a week with absolutely nothing scheduled. You can do anything you want. If you are resourceful and outgoing, and some students on the spectrum are outgoing, and you join clubs and you hang out with your roommates or make friends, uh, you go to the library and you study, you uh, do a sport, what have you, you can have a fantastic time in college. But if you just sit in your room because you don't have any class or you play video games because you don't have any assignments due the next day, again, you can get into trouble very quickly from a mental health standpoint becoming depressed, not being very well nourished because your your parents aren't, you know, choosing your balanced meal for you, um, or falling way behind on, on schoolwork such as such that you don't catch up and you start failing out. Um, so the executive function, I think, is is the biggest challenge. And then of course there's the social piece. Often students prior to college have been in a somewhat stable cohort through high school. They may be in high school with the same kids they were in, in middle school, or at least some of the same kids. So they haven't really had to start fresh and make new friends for a very long time when they start college. And then suddenly in college, you don't know anybody. Um, and if you are introverted and you don't take the initiative or you have struggle with conversations or social cues, um, you could be very challenged from a social standpoint. And then you're also in all these new situations. Now, not just making friends, but living with a peer in a very close quarters, unless you request a single room, which is an accommodation that students can request that families often don't know about. And one of the things you know I like about working with families is that I can help open their eyes to opportunities out there that they had no idea was even an option. Like, oh, I can get a single room for my kid in college? Oh, there's colleges that have autism support programs? Wow, you know, I didn't know all this stuff. What do you say to the transitioning college student who is afraid to ask for accommodations? What, some people liken it to insurance, you know, cost money to buy fire insurance or car insurance or health insurance, and you might not need it. Your house may never burn down. Your car may never get into an accident. But if you need it, you really want to be sure that you have it. And I hear a couple of things with from students. One is um, they don't necessarily say it explicitly, but I can sense that they, they don't like having been associated with special ed. And they have this fantasy, I think, that in, in college, they can start fresh. Nobody knows their history. They can be a mainstream student, and they won't have any stigma associated with them. Well, I totally appreciate that. And if they were bullied or teased, I, you know, I feel terrible about that. I was bullied. 80% of the, the folks in our study of older autistic adults were bullied as kids. Um, it's really unfortunate, but I don't think the answer is to not access supports that you need. For one thing, nobody needs to know that you're accessing those supports and accommodations. Uh, you don't have to tell your roommate. You don't have to tell uh, your friends in college that you are, you know, getting accommodations through the disability services office. That's totally up to you. You also don't have to talk about it when you apply to college. It's a whole other topic. Um, you don't have to disclose your diagnosis during the application process. You can, but you don't need to. Um, 
So part of that, I think, is that, you know, wanting to get away from the stigma, I, I think that's understandable, but I think it can lead to a lot of trouble. The other is that I hear students sometimes say, you know, I don't know if I'm going to need that stuff. I don't really use it that much right now. Why don't I just kind of go and see how it goes? And if I need it later, then I'll, then I'll you know, I'll access it then or I'll look into it at that point. I don't think that's a good approach either, because if you're in, you know, in your first year of college and you're starting to fail some of your classes, it's going to be very difficult to put everything in place on top of trying to stay uh, on top of your schoolwork to then also have to make appointments with the disability office, figure out if your if your documentation is up to date, figure out how you have those conversations with professors. That's a lot to take on at a time when you might be starting to, you know, sink below the surface. Um, so you want to have all that in place in case you need it. If you don't need it, you don't need extra time on tests, you don't have to use it. Or maybe you only need it in one class, but not another. Um, but I say, get all that stuff in place. And uh, if you don't need it, great. But, um, and it's not black or white. You might need it for some classes, but not others. You might need it in your first year, but not in your second year. For example, with some of these support programs, it's not unusual for a student to have a learning support program their first year and then, um, then fly solo after that. Very interesting. You know, I find with our uh, 18 plus year old interns uh, that we're mentoring here at Different Brains, that I kind of encourage them to wear their neurodiversity like a badge of honor. Uh, and um, I think it's very interesting that you, I guess you suggest, but you, you let them make the decision. I'm saying it's a personal decision. I've had students write about being on the spectrum in their college essays. That's great. For them, it's part of their, their identity. Um, for other students, they may want, they may have something else that they're passionate they want to write about, maybe some particular interest that they've pursued. And there may not be a specific need to talk about it. It's not that they're necessarily hiding it, but they may not have a pressing need to talk about it. Um, I certainly encourage families to research disability services while they're shopping around for colleges and to make those connections and to get those services lined up prior to classes starting. But whether they talk about it on their ap application or not, that's a personal decision. If they want to, I will absolutely help them with those essays. Um, I, I do agree with your philosophy. I think that autism pride, disability pride, neurodiversity pride is not at the place where other um, identity groups are. You know, I, I have a gay daughter, she has an enormous pride flag uh, hanging in her window. Um, I don't think we're quite at the same place yet as a society that we are with other groups, but I hope that we get there. I would love to get to a point where um, a, one student can say to another, whether it's in high school or college, hey, I'm on the spectrum. And another student says, oh, that's so cool. You know, Tell me more about it. I am too, or my, my brother is too. Um, where it's something that we're that people are extremely comfortable sharing and that it, it could be, um, you know, open doors. Very worthy goals. Let's hope we get there. Um, talk to me about the specific problems you find with students um, with note-taking and what some of the tools are. Hmm. Yeah, well, I have probably have my own uh, executive function challenges. So um, there's, um, you know, there's a whole specialty 
of um, help in accessing um, accommodations and um, I'm blocking on the term right now, but uh, so I think there's a few challenges for students on the spectrum with, with note taking. Um, one can be just the physical act, um, the fine motor coordination. Students might have dysgraphia, uh, might have dyslexia also. So there may be some um, challenges with the, the actual process of it, the mechanics of it. Um, and then there's the executive function piece of having to mentally um, abstract what you're hearing and, and compact it into a summary form. So the professor is going on and on about whatever it might be, or there's a few things going on in class. You've got to figure out what's the most important thing to write down. What is it that I'm going to need to know on the test or for this paper that's being assigned? That's hard to figure out on the fly with everything else going on. You might be distracted by um, the you know, sounds of the air conditioning or the smell of the student sitting next to you. And to also be able to figure that out and listen to the, to the professor, that's just, that could be overwhelming. So sometimes students can get access to a professor's notes or to a recorded lecture or content. So they don't have to do all of that on the fly. So I am not, uh, I don't think the burden should always be on the student to up their game and just do it anyways, you know, run faster. I think, um, you know, let's level the playing field. If it's more difficult for you, then let's find ways to, to make it, you know, comparable to what it would be for other students. And the thing is, as I'm sure you know, with universal design, these are accommodations or tools that can help all students. If all students have access to the recorded lecture, what about a student who was sick that day, who didn't attend the lecture? That's great. They can listen to the lecture recorded. So um, things that sound like, you know, oh, special treatment for people um, with, uh, with a diagnosis often end up helping everybody. And that's true for universal design in general, not just for neurodiversity, whether it's students with visual or hearing issues. Um, I think moving in that direction, again, of making curriculum universally accessible, of making colleges not just autism friendly, but, but inclusive and neurodiversity friendly and disability friendly is gonna help everybody. How do people who are watching this or listening to this or reading this, how do they learn more about you and your resources? Um, I would say, you know, you can start by going to topcollegeconsultants.com. Try to put lots of content out there for free. So, you know, I don't like websites where you go on the website and immediately there's pop ups saying, you know, subscribe to this, get our, you know, buy our course, buy this, buy that. Um, I don't have any pop ups. You know, you can just go there and browse and there's articles and podcasts and recorded videos, whatever you, your format is you prefer. I've got a list of autism friendly colleges that I spend a lot of time collecting, which people find useful. So, you know, you want to find the list of all the college autism programs in one place. It's not the only list on the internet. In fact, the College Autism Network just updated their list. But I've tried to keep it updated and put information on there that is useful to families, like the cost of the programs. So I want to put information out there that's useful for them. Um, not all families can hire consultants. I'm well aware of that. It's something that my colleagues and I are very sensitive to. We want families, we, we want to make 
higher education more accessible to everyone. I wish college weren't so expensive. Um, and, you know, we are always looking for ways to help families access education and all the tools that we have. So um, if you want to hire a consultant to help you through the process, great. If you, if that's not your, in your um, plans, there's lots of information out there anyways. I also co-administer a Facebook group, which now has over a thousand members. It's called Parents of College-Bound Students with Learning Disabilities, ADHD, and ASD. It's a long name, but you can always reach out to me to find it. Um, and that is just a great resource for parents to help each other. Uh, hey, does anyone have any students who've gone to this school? Has anyone tried this program? Does anyone have recommendations for a tutor or executive function coach? It's a great place for parents to help each other. Um, so that's another resource. How has the pandemic affected what you do and the families you treat and the individual neurodivergent transitioning to college individuals? Uh, great question, Hacky. And of course, it's affected all of our lives in different ways. Um, I would say it's affected my families more than it's affected me because my work was already virtual. I work with students worldwide, um, primarily in the US, but some, some international students as well. And I was doing that and I was on Zoom before the pandemic. So I didn't have to suddenly you know, move my office or close my office. And uh, I'm gonna continue working virtually with students all over. So that, that aspect didn't change. Uh, the one thing that sort of changed for me personally was not traveling to colleges. I love getting um, out there in 2019 before the pandemic. I, I visited over 50 colleges that year. Um, and then in March, uh, uh, 2020, I was visiting colleges and it just stopped. I had a bunch of visits on the books that got canceled. So that's a big change for me, as well as you know, not seeing um, colleagues in person at conferences. For families, it's much bigger than that. It's studying remotely. It's not being able to tour colleges and, and having to, and applying to colleges that you haven't visited. I was uh, I finally got to resume college tours. I was at one a few weeks ago. At, uh, Providence College in Rhode Island, and uh, the director of admissions said, for the first time, we have a class of freshmen starting, most of whom have never set foot on this college, most of whom never been to this campus. Wow. And so that's a kind of a unique, unique point in time right now. There have always been international students who are applying from China, India, other countries, to colleges they, they had not seen in person. So it's not unprecedented, but for American students, it's kind of unprecedented that you're applying to all these colleges and you don't really know what it's like to be there. Um, so that's a big difference. Then there's the whole, you know, tests being canceled, ACT and SAT administrations being canceled left and right, colleges going test optional, and then families not knowing, oh, what does that mean? Should we try to take the test? Is it gonna help? Uh, so many questions coming up because it's a moving target because there's so much in flux. Uh, initially, I think some folks thought, oh, maybe with all these changes and, you know, people losing their jobs, uh, people wouldn't be going to consultants. Actually, our work got busier because the anxiety level and uncertainty got higher. So people were like, geez, I need help figuring out what to do about this. How do I research colleges? Should my kid try to take the test? Um, and as I said, I'm a psychologist by training. So part of my job, part of the reason I do this is to reduce 
the temperature to reduce the anxiety. I don't want families being stressed about this. I think going to college can be an amazing adventure and I want kids excited about it, not worried and stressed about it. There are colleges out there for everyone. Uh, if you want to go to college, obviously you don't have to go to college. There's plenty of people who are having successful careers without going to college. I'm not saying that it's for everyone, but if that's what you want to do, um, there are opportunities out there for you. Um, even if you're not that strong of a student, you can still go to college and have a, a great experience. So I want, I want families to see that. What you do is so um, admirable because um, you take so much of the anxiety out. And we're all ruled by anxiety. When I wrote the Asper Tools book, that's why I made that the very first chapter, you know, because anxiety rules all of us, you know. And um, the first thing that you do is you relieve the anxiety multifactorially because it's not just talk it's listen if you do this you can do this and here's the formula and here's what we're going to do and we're here to help you um just amazing and sometimes some of the anxiety can be anxiety about working with an adult that they don't know um and so i think having a consultant in the picture is a good experience for kids because when they go off to college their parents aren't going to be in the picture typically and um they're going to be dealing with professors, academic advisors, maybe tutors, executive function coaches, other um, folks, maybe a counselor, maybe, um, you know, other administrators at college, whether it's, you know, all kinds of offices you have to go to in college. It's a good time to start getting comfortable interacting with adults and self-advocating. You know, I Students are, you know, making their appointments with me. I don't want the parents to necessarily make the appointments. Students can get involved in scheduling and communicating with me and, you know, um, giving me feedback on, on uh, how things are going. So it's an opportunity for students to start kind of developing the skills they'll need in college for self-advocacy and um, flying a little more, you know, independently of their parents. What is one thing you wish all colleges understood about their neurodivergent students? You know, the one thing I wish all colleges understood about neurodivergent students is that neurodiversity is just another kind of diversity. We're all unique. We all bring different things to the table. And being different in the way you think, different in the way that your mind works, is an asset. It means that you will have a college with a variety, a richness of viewpoints and ideas that will make for a, a better college. Well, Eric Endlick, thank you so very much for being here. Um, what you do is just, uh, you know, really to me, it is so admirable and so amazing with the top college consultants and what you do for those of us whose brains are a little bit different. We hope you'll come back soon and thank you so much for spending time with us here at Exploring Different Brains. Thank you, Haki. It's been a pleasure. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. 